The Guardian. Imagine you are standing on London streets in the 19th century. There's women in large dresses, men in top hats, carriages rumbling past, and the busy chatter of an urban throng. Now imagine taking in a big, deep breath. What odours can you detect? The stench of the Thames? Perhaps a slight waft of manure left by horses? What about the scent of the bustling crowd? The smell of ale or maybe even hot pies? Unless they're particularly foul, overwhelming or delicious, smells aren't always something we pay a lot of attention to. In fact, try it again now. Have a good old sniff. What can you smell? Coffee? Dinner cooking? The clothes you've been wearing for maybe just a few too many days? Smells can tell us a lot about the world around us, which is why a new project called Ojiropa has been set up with teams of scientists and historians across Europe to delve into the sense of the past, giving us new insights into what it was like to live during the time when Newton devised his laws of motion, Voltaire was penning Condide, and Marie Curie was researching radioactivity. Obviously, dung doesn't smell very nice. But for some people, you know, it was the smell of wealth because there was a a vibrant trade in both human and uh, animal feces for manure. So it could smell productive as well as nasty. So they existed in a different sensory world. Think about the tolerance that people might have had to food smells before the fridge was invented. I'm Nicola Davis, and this is Science Weekly. To uncover exactly how you find out what the past smells like, I called two experts working on the project. Hi, I'm Cecilia Benvivre. I'm a heritage scientist and I research smell at the Institute for Sustainable Heritage of University College London. And my name's uh, William Tullett and I'm a lecturer in history at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge. William, let's let's start with you. Um, Tell me why, as a historian you're particularly interested in smells. I mean, we often think about, you know, rifling through documents and, and thinking about how people lived, but the kind of smellscape of an era is something which seems so intangible that we almost kind of don't go near it. So I wonder why did smells, why did odours kind of appeal to you? I think it really comes back to your point about how people lived. That was one of the things you mentioned in that question there. And I think any historian, anybody who's interested in the past, they're interested in how people lived in the past, what it felt like to be in the past, you know, what living in the past was like. And smell is is crucial to our to our sense of taste, our ability to engage with the world around us, our, our sense of place and community. If we want to know about how people lived in the past and how people experienced their worlds, then smell's really crucial. But I also think there's kind of a new exciting area to go into as well and start exploring because you talked about rifling through documents. Actually nobody's rifled through documents before to look for smells. But once you start looking in the documents for smells, they're everywhere. William, the first time many of us will have thought about the smells of the past, it's usually something pretty unpleasant. We think about, you know, the sort of smell of people not having bathed for ages, you know, the sort of uh, great stink of London in 1858. You know, it's never a really beautiful, fragrant past we think of. It's usually a rather nasty smelling past. Is that fair or is that just utterly misunderstanding how things were? And, and how does that impact on our perception of the past? 
one of the aims of Oderopa, the project that me and Cecilia are involved in, uh, is to try and build a more complex and nuanced understanding of the smells of the past that gets us away from that very binary vision of it either being completely disgusting or very perfumed and fragrant. But it's undeniably the case that many of the interpretations of smell that we find not just in museums, but on our TV screens, in, in museums like at Jorvik Viking Centre, or even in, in children's books, uh, like the Smelly Old History series that was published by an eminent medical historian at uh, via Oxford University Press, which had scratch and sniff panels with the things like uh, Henry VIII's smelly feet. All of those things kind of emphasise bad smells. And really, I think that speaks to our tendency to separate smells into a binary of, of disgusting and pleasant. And it's important to recognise actually that that binary has historical roots. And we can, we can track that by looking at the history of science, actually. So if we go back to the 17th century, people like Robert Boyle, eminent scientist, member of the Royal Society, is really interested in smells and air. And the way he describes them is through a whole series of words. So he talks about things smelling like bread, like urine. Once we get into the late 18th century and we look at the, the chemistry works of, of people like Humphrey Davy or Joseph Priestley, who are all also interested in air, the only words they use to describe smell are offensive, disgusting, you know, or pleasant. But the one thing I've said to a few people so far is if we took Samuel Pepys, the famous 17th century diarist, and transplanted him to modern London, he'd probably be just as disgusted by the smells around him today as we would be by the smells in 17th century London, because our sense of what's foul and what's fragrant is determined by our own environment and surroundings and culture. In the, in the 17th century, at the start of the period that, that the Oderopa project is working on, in Europe, obviously dung doesn't smell very nice. But in, for some people, you know, it was the smell of wealth because there was a, a vibrant trade in both human and uh, animal feces uh, for manure. So it could smell productive as well as nasty. That takes us nicely on to the project that you mentioned that you and Cecilia are both involved in, and it's called Ojiropa. William, tell us a bit about that. How will it be uncovering the smells of the past? What, what do we mean by that? One of the goals of Oderopa, which is looking at the smells of the European past from the 17th century through to the, the early 20th century, is we're trying to use the massive amounts of digitised historical texts that now exist, and then trying to apply new methods, including AI and computer science, to find smells in that huge bundle of data. So what I'm going to be doing at first is trying to think about what are all the different words, all the different categories that are used to describe smell or have been used to describe smell in the past, and then handing that over to our, our people in computer science and image processing on the project, who are then going to utilise that information to kind of train the computers to basically smell text and images, essentially, um, <laughs> in some ways. Um, and once we've got all of that, of course, it moves on to kind of creating stories about those smells that we can then take to the public. And, and that's really where Cecilia's work comes in as well, in trying to reconstruct and, and preserve smells for the future. Now, Cecilia, you're delving into the chemistry behind this. So take me through what your role in the project is and what you're doing. The work I've done so far has been in, related to understanding the significance of certain smells within cultural heritage and developing a framework to preserve them as cultural heritage. So. What we're going to do in Europa is take those smells that our team of historians have interpreted and 
try to understand their significance. So we're going to take certain historic objects, for example, and conduct chemical and sensory analysis to try to deconstruct their smell. So what we do normally is we start from the base of understanding that smell is a cultural construct. So what is smell? Smell is a combination of chemical compounds. On one hand, we can pay attention to the chemistry and understand which chemical compounds are responsible for which smell. But on the other hand, we need to understand that for there to be a smell, there needs to be a nose to smell it. And that nose and the way the smell is interpreted in the brain is influenced by the cultural background, the genetic makeup, the gender, the age. So we need to understand all of this before we even start delving into characterizing the smells. Once we have identified a historic object as in possession of a smell that we want to explore, what we do is we use analytical chemistry techniques to take a sample of the air around the object And then we use instruments and techniques such as uh, gas chromatography and mass spectrometry to identify, separate and identify the chemical compounds that are responsible for that smell. On the other hand, as I was saying, the smell is a perception. So we work with panels of people who account for the sensory experience of that smell in terms of describing it as Uh, fresh or musty or um, woody, for example, and then evaluating hedonic tone, which is pleasantness or unpleasantness. And finally, we rate them for intensity to understand what role that smell played, for example, in a busy street or in a room full of other smells. And Cecilia, I know that when you have an object, you're able to capture that the smell it gives off with a rather fascinating process. You, so you take it into a heritage lab, you put it in a sealed bell jar so there's no ventilation in there, and you let the chemical compounds sort of concentrate inside the jar. And then I understand you use a special kind of, of polymer, which the smell or the chemical compounds stick to and sort of grab the smell from the bell jar. And then you run it through a gas spectrograph or mass spectrometer to understand what it's made up of, you know, what the chemical compounds in there are. And then after that, once you've captured the, the smell and have a, a record of it, what I want to know is, do you try and recreate it synthetically? Or do you place the object, let's say an old book, in front of people and tell them to take a big sniff? I do both. I have taken people to St. Paul's Cathedral's historic library, for example, and asked them to express in their own words what the smell of the library meant to them and how they described them. And this is because when we perceive the world, we do it with all our senses. So being able to see the library while you smell it, for example, makes a big difference as to how you describe the smell. When we have access to the material sources of the historic smells, for example, if we can access a snuff box that might have traces of the smell or a cosmetic container or a medicinal or something that was used to present or cook food, uh, we can perform our framework analysis uh, documenting the smell and, and we have a knowledge of the materials that uh, those containers were made of so we can Uh, estimate how much they would have changed over time and correct for that. 
So that's one approach. And then we can reconstruct the smell as we think was in the past with with a little room for imagination, but mostly with scientific evidence. Then when we go far back into the past and we're thinking about historic events that took place hundreds of years ago, we obviously don't have a material source to do the scientific analysis. So in that sense, we will work with perfumers and olfactory museologists to reconstruct historically informed version of the smell, which will be an interpretation based on our knowledge of the components and the environment in which that smell was perceived. Are there particular smells, William and Cecilia, that you're particularly keen to delve into to find out more about whether that's about how they perhaps actually smelt or whether it's about the perception at the time of them? From my perspective, I'm really interested in not so much particular smells, but in smellscapes. So the kind of mixtures and composition of smells that might be associated with with particular periods or particular places. Uh, And for me, one really interesting example of that is the Industrial Revolution as a kind of historical phenomena. In late 18th century and 19th century Europe, what kind of smellscape did the Industrial Revolution create? But also, how did that smellscape vary, right? Because, you know, Manchester, for example, where you've got cotton manufacturing and textile manufacturing versus Birmingham, where you've got the metal trades. Did those two cities smell different because of the mix of smells that emanated from their different trades? And the story of industrialization, for example, goes all the way up to today and to the kinds of smells that people remember today, because I've had so many conversations about the, about my research where I've talked to people and they've said, oh, yeah, well, I used to live in X, Y or Z town and we used to have a big factory nearby that made insert commodity here. So it might be instant coffee uh, or it might be biscuits or it might be a brewery. Um, and they really distinctly remember the smell of that place. And now, of course, we're at a very different historical moment of deindustrialization, and we're losing many of those smells of manufacturing that used to define towns and define the smellscapes of particular areas. So for me, that's the really fascinating and interesting element of the project is, is trying to trace the smells associated with those kind of quite widespread historical changes that really transformed uh, people's lives in a, in a big way. It's funny you should mention that because my secondary school is next door to a brewery. And so I had the, the waft of hops come across the uh, the playgrounds every day. So uh, even even just mentioning that, I can smell it now. <laughs> I've never been a fan of beer since. But also, I just wonder, is there any particular point in time where you think from your work so far that you absolutely wouldn't want to go back to, that really is just too pongy for words? I can certainly think of spaces that I wouldn't like to be. There are certain industries where you can imagine it would be pretty horrific, like, uh, like 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 tanneries that work with leather, for example. They were incredibly, incredibly smelly. On the other hand, whilst it would be horrible for me, for a tanner at the time, they'd probably get used to the smell quite quickly. And in fact, in many of these trades in the late 17th century, uh, you've got the dawning of medical writers working on occupational health. And um, they're very quickly realising that many of the smelliest trades, people just get used to the smell, partly because their sense of smell is just being destroyed by all the chemicals and stuff. I just wanted to add to Will's um, answer, one of the interesting things that we're looking at is also considering that the people at the time not only got used to the smells, but also had a completely different 
sensibility if we compare them with us. So, for example, think about the tolerance that people might have had to food smells before the fridge was invented. So they existed in a different sensory world, and this is important for us, and we are aware of it, and we need to find a way also to communicate this when we bring back those smells and we present them to people to avoid what often happens, which is, you know, people perceiving them as inherently unpleasant and the context getting lost. Cecilia, William, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and telling us about this fascinating project. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I hope your listeners, if they want to share their smell stories with us, we're always very happy to hear from them. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, I was going to think of an appropriate sign-off, but the only thing that could come to mind is I will smell you later. (laughs) Thanks again to Will and Cecilia for joining me. If you're interested in finding out more about the project, you can visit the website at www.oduropa.eu or visit them on Twitter at Oduropa. That's O-D-E-U-R-O-P-A. We'll put links to both of these on our podcast webpage at theguardian.com. That's it for today. If you have any questions or comments for us on the podcast, do email us at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.